Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Last week, 12-year-old Secret Pierce was killed in a drive-by shooting in Hartford, and there have been a record number of mass shootings in the U.S. already in 2023. That's according to the Associated Press. Gun violence is one of the leading causes of deaths in America and the leading cause of death in children and teens. According to the Kaiser Family Foundations, gun-related incidents are common among adults. Despite this, research around this issue remains limited and vastly underfunded. Today, we talk about the intersections of gun violence and public health and the push to view gun violence as a public health issue. But first, we're joined by Connecticut musician Jimmy Green. He is the father of Sandy Hook victim Anna Grace Marquez Green, and he'll be performing at the Love Wins Benefit concert this weekend. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And you can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Jimmy, can you tell us about the jazz concert that's coming up this weekend? Yeah, so my daughter Anna was killed in the Sandy Hook school shootings. And in the days and weeks that followed, uh, in December 2012 and into January, um, as my family, uh, understandably, was really unable to uh, uh, function in the way that we're we're used to functioning. Um, We had some very compassionate, loving folks step up and uh, offer us some help. Uh, And and this goes, you know, this is our local community. This is nationally. Um, In particular, uh, I got, you know, some phone calls or emails or Facebook messages asking, um, well, what can we do? You know, uh, we could send flowers, but is there anything we can do that might help you and your family more? Is there somewhere, is there a cause we can donate to? Is there something we can do um, that would honor your little girl? And I thought to myself, uh, well, there's there's a lot you could do. There, our, our daughter, Anna, loved music. She loved dancing. She loved performing for people. Um, she loved people. So uh, me as a university professor, Uh, Having just started my time here at Western Connecticut State University, uh, my family and me, my wife, Delba, uh, we thought, what better way to honor our little girl than with a music scholarship fund uh, for young students to be able to realize their dream. And so I had, getting back to uh, the vast amount of help that we had, some of my colleagues, particularly the dean uh, of our School of Visual and Performing Arts at the time, his name is Dan Goebel, he said, if that's something that you and your family would like to do, I can set that up right away. 
So uh, that scholarship fund was born in the early uh, part of 2013. Um, A lot of people have generously donated over the years. Uh, We had the idea to start having a celebration um, a couple years later to really look at um, all the beautiful uh, things that my daughter was and celebrate her life. And uh, I had no trouble finding some of my world-class artist friends to come and perform. So we did the first one, I believe, in we did a, uh, in our building is brand new here at Western Connecticut State University in Danbury. Uh, we have a beautiful uh, state-of-the-art school before, school of visual and performing arts and a wonderful concert hall, our Veronica Hagman Concert Hall. So that was all brand new at this time. Uh, we had a grand opening of the concert hall in 2014, and in 2015 we wanted to do something um, to honor our daughter and to raise money for the scholarship fund in her name. So we decided to have this concert in 2015, and the response was unbelievable. Uh, so many people came out. Uh, there was so much love in the room that evening, and we decided, you know what, we should do this again. So we did it uh, three or four times before the pandemic hit. And uh, tomorrow night, Saturday, April the 29th, is our first uh, concert since uh, the uh, since the pandemic hit. So we're really excited to get back on stage and to celebrate my little girl. And we have some amazing artists coming to join us, uh, coming from far and wide, uh, changing their travel plans, adjusting things uh, to be here tomorrow night. Uh, the great vocalist Claudia Acuna who was originally from Chile, but has been a mainstay on the New York scene for 30 years or so, uh, who's been nominated for a Latin Grammy Award. Uh, there's the pianist, Oren Evans, who I know, whom I've known since we were in high school. Yeah, he's from Philadelphia. We were in an All-American, the Grammy All-American High School Jazz Band together, our senior year of high school, if you can believe that. So I've known Oren uh, for 30 years. Uh, he's coming up. Uh, he's been nominated for several Grammy Awards himself. Uh, the great bassist Desron Douglas, who's actually a Hartford native, uh, who I knew when he was really young uh, in and around the Hartford area. He's gone on to do amazing things. He uh, he plays with uh, Trey Anastasio's band and his own groups and has uh, made many, many recordings and tours all over the world. And uh, my friend Otis Brown III, the great drummer, who his latest recording it was released on Blue Note Records and plays with all sorts of people from Esperanza Spalding to Joe Lovano. So uh, it's really a star-studded lineup. All of them are great friends I've known for years and years and years, and I'm so thrilled that they made themselves available to come up and to uh, celebrate my little girl and to uh, support the students here at WestCon. I was going to say, that is such a star-studded team, and what a There are no better reasons to cancel their plans or changing their plans, as you say, to do this uh, Love Wins concert. And it sounds like it's called Love Wins for very obvious reasons. I can hear the love in your voice. I can can see the picture of love that you painted for us. So thank you so much for sharing just that entire process of how this became such a beautiful um, celebration, as you said. And I want to ask you, you know, can you talk about the scholarship a bit more? You know, when will or what will it go to? Is it specifically for music students? And and why? I mean, an obvious question, but why is it so important to have the scholarship and to sort of help these students build those dreams, as you said earlier? 
Well, we we really feel very fortunate here at Westcon that our tuition is affordable enough to really feel comfortable asking families and to send their children here. You know, college is not uh, cheap, uh, but and and you know we feel like we offer a world class education at a very affordable rate. However, college isn't free. So uh, these scholarships go to incoming students who are music, who are have identified that they want to be music majors, and they audition here, and we identify uh, potential scholarship winners through their auditions. Uh, so we we really have a chance to help uh, these young people and their families realize their dream uh, in in the music industry, or if they're uh, music music. Uh, audio and music production folks, whatever their path in the music world is, we want to help them, and this scholarship can help do so. And what does the music program at Western look like, and what has your experience been like transitioning back to live music since COVID? Wow, uh, the transition's been, uh, as someone who lived most of their life and most of their professional life, with you know the realities of being able to tour and to perform and to go out and hear live music whenever I could or whenever I was able to, um, this pandemic was really difficult to to deal with. Really um, troubling to see that live music venues shut down and uh, performing opportunities shut down even more so for young students who are just getting started in the performing world. Uh, a big part of an education in music is going out to hear live music, to hear it actually done uh, in person by great musicians. So they weren't able to do that for a couple of years. So their perspective on uh, what a career in the music world could be was really shattered. So, Getting back to live performing, getting back to concerts, getting back to to all this that we have kind of taken for granted for our lives is really, really impactful, especially for the young people who have had to live the last several years, some of the most formative years of their life, whether it be at the end of high school and into college uh, during this pandemic. So um, our music program at Western, I think, is a wonderful one. Uh, we have we our proximity. Uh, we're in Danbury. Our proximity to New York allows us to have access to the vast talent pool of artists and artist teachers uh, in and around the New York City area. Um, our students can hop on a Metro North train and be in Midtown Manhattan in an hour or so, and and go get to hear all the live music. And we're an hour pretty much an hour away from anywhere else in Connecticut. So they can participate and do often participate, uh, go see, hear concerts and go uh, perform places throughout the state. So we're, I think our location is, is optimal for what we do. And uh, I think we offer the best of all possible worlds as far as offering a music education. Well, we've been talking about, you know, students and yourself coming back into, you know, live music after COVID and, do you connect music with healing, and and how do you use music to carry out Anna's legacy forward, especially since she loves music and loves dancing, as you said? Well, you know, uh, knowing my daughter as, as I did and as my family has, 
uh, her memory is precious to us because we remember her alive. We remember how vivacious she was. We remember uh, the sound of her voice as she was singing. We we hold those videos and audio things that we recorded over the years of her singing and, and just her speaking. Uh, we hold them very dear to us. So to honor her memory is something that's very natural for us to want to do. Um, to keep her memory alive is something that's very important to us. Um, we, it, it is, and it's very important to us that others, you know, are, you know, supportive of that, supportive of us in that too, that they are willing to help us keep our daughter's memory alive. So for me, as a musician, music is a language, as I say often, and it's a language that often kicks in when words fail. You know, the language of music is universal. Um, you don't have to. Uh, learn how to speak it necessarily to enjoy it, but learning how to speak the musical language is a great blessing, and it's something that you know I really am excited to share with students. Uh, but as far as using music to heal, um, music is a part of my everyday existence. It's a big, it's a huge part of my life. It's a huge part of what I am. Uh, and having music uh, in my life to be able to express things that sometimes words can't and to be able to tap into uh, thoughts and emotions uh, sometimes that I didn't even know were there through music is a very helpful thing. Uh, when someone's grieving, you know, it, it is really important to meet that person where they are and to have them develop the kind of coping skills that are most meaningful to them and most productive and I think uh, music is a wonderful way um, to to be there for a person in the best and worst times of their life. Well, I want to thank you for sharing that universal language with us. We certainly feel the love and am honored to be a part of this conversation and uh, keeping Anna's uh, memory alive. So thank you very much, Jimmy. Uh, you've been listening to Jimmy Green. He's the father of Sandy Hook victim Anna Grace Marquez Green, and he'll be performing at the Love Wins Benefit concert this weekend. The proceeds will go into a scholarship in his daughter's name. Uh, Jimmy, again, we appreciate you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. And coming up next, we're going to hear from two local advocates to help us better understand how gun violence should be treated as a public health issue. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And eyes so bright A love that reflects God's glory She danced and sang And laughed and lived A life full of joy Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Gun violence continues to be the lead cause of death for children and teenagers here in the U.S. And here to discuss how this affects a community are Andrew Woods. He's the CEO of Hartford Communities That Care and Dr. Jennifer Deneen, who's the associate professor for uh, UConn and as well as the associate director of the Arm Center for Gun Injury Prevention as well as at UConn. And just a quick note that we are talking about themes of violence and suicide today. If you need to talk to someone, you can call SAMHSA's National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. It's free, confidential, and available 24-7. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew and Dr. Deneen. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And Andrew, we want to start from you. So we're talking on the heels of the death of a 12-year-old girl, Secret Pierce, here in Hartford. She was sitting in a car when she was killed in a drive-by shooting. And there have been 23 shooting victims in Hartford just this year. So, Andrew, I want to ask you, what went through your mind when you heard of this latest shooting? Yeah, Well, it was obviously tough to hear and tough to know that the impact of this would not only have on uh, Secret's family, but also the impact it will have on her peers and how that would, um, how something along these lines can actually continue to destabilize people's sense of safety uh, in our community. And again, even uh, equally as important to young people her age and how they struggle today just with the whole issue of safety on how this continued to um, undermine that sense that um, they live in a society that is operating in their best interest. And what has your work looked like since this shooting? Well, you know, it, it, it really hasn't changed significantly in one regard in that we've always been attentive to the fact that we have to be there for our young people and for our families. And every day, those that are engaged in this work uh, fight and grind very hard to make sure that young people and families are safe in the city of Hartford, the greater Hartford area, and clearly with our partners across the state. And so, uh, you know, it hasn't changed in that regard. We're going to continue to do what we can every single day, work as hard as we can to make sure that young people are safe. But how it has impacted us is that just as 
it impacts the people that we serve. It also impacts those who do this work because uh, it's very frustrating at times, it can be. But also, um, uh, it, by the way, it also undermines um, our own sense of um, safety in many, in many ways. But also, it just reinforces to us the need to just keep grinding harder to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep people safe and out of harm's way and to provide the opportunities for, them, for young people to take advantage of other opportunities that are out there uh, that can help prevent and alleviate some of these issues. Well, I'm, I'm glad, excuse me, I'm glad that you um, mentioned that this goes all the ways. And that's why we're here having this conversation is to talk about how it impacts everyone, really. And I know you touched on it a little bit just now, but can you explain to our listeners just a bit more about what your organization does? And you mentioned the partnerships. Do you have any um, specific partnerships that you work with to help victims and their families who are impacted by gun violence? Yeah, Absolutely. Well, first of all, you know, we, we started out as an organization, as a mentoring organization, providing youth leadership development um, and, and, and advocacy support for those within the school system, as well as the uh, general public here in the city of Hartford, the greater Hartford area. So we provide mentoring, <clears throat> after school programming, crisis intervention, hospital league violence intervention programming, uh, school-based programming that really connects young people and families from a prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery standpoint. And so uh, we have staff that are both, again, located here in the north end of Hartford, but we serve the greater Hartford area. But also we have school-based programs within the Hartford public school system that work with young people and their families to provide them with the academic and social and emotional support that many of them um, require to basically improve their standards of, uh, of living. And I know you also mentioned this a little bit earlier, but beyond just the family, can you also g- give us an idea of what the ripple effects has that gun violence looks like in the community? You also mentioned your staff as well. Um, that's certainly an area that I think people tend to forget. Well, you know, and, and thank you for bringing it up because oftentimes we do think about the acute stage of violence, so when an incident happens, but also there's the chronic and more complex forms of uh, trauma or traumatic exposure that young people and families in the community experience. So I'll give you an example, long-term response, prolonged, repeated events. You know, we talk about the chronic exposure to violence and how that actually impacts people. But also we talk about complex trauma to where folks, you know, it's not just about the gun violence, it's also about economic deprivation, the poverty. It's also about, um, uh, rather, it's abuse and neglect. It's also about racism. It's about, you know, discriminatory practices that impact people. So really, it's a range of different trauma rea- or uh, a traumatic exposure that young people and families face that actually is really a part of the whole, uh, the whole, it's more of a whole picture approach or, or that people, we really hope people really take into account. And so oftentimes we just stop at the gun violence that this is the issue or this is what's causing, uh, this is what people are exposed to, when really it's a great deal more than that. In fact, we would even argue that it's a lot of those other issues that actually lead to the ultimately violent crime or people's exposure or being chronically exposed to violent crime when you're living in high poverty areas. When you have young people who are just stressed, think about in the aftermath of COVID. Uh, what really in the aftermath of COVID or right now we're post-COVID, you know, it's really becoming real clear 
how ill-equipped we are. And it's not just individuals in high crime or poverty-stricken areas, just the entire fabric of society has somewhat been challenged and stretched. And so even when you have wealthy folks, affluent folks who are stretched to no limits, and they have resources to actually counter some of the challenges that they may be uh, that maybe they may be impacted by. Think about those with less resources, and how they now, with very few resources, have to deal with encounter the significant stressors that they are faced with. And that's why you find folks inside some of these neighborhoods that actually are at wit's end, if you will, and find themselves being more at risk of being victims of violent crime and, in some cases, perpetrators of violent crime because the less resources people have, the less they can rely on to get them out of tight fixes or where they believe they may have alternatives. And Jennifer, I want to bring you in here, you know, building on what Andrew just said, how ill-equipped we are to to deal with this. And, and for, for something that has been such in the forefront of our conversation these days, you know, why do you, why do we know so little about gun violence? Well, Catherine, that is a bit of a long story, um, and and I'll make it as as quick as possible. But around 1992, the federal government had established the National Center for Injury Control, and gun violence and gun injury was an area that they were beginning to research and identify. In 1996, we had the Dickey Amendment um, sponsored by Congressman Jay Dickey from Arkansas, and the amendment barred the use of federal funds to advocate advocate or promote gun control. And those are the words in the bill. And that got taken um, to possibly consider any potential way we might look at restricting access um, or, or programs or interventions to maybe mitigate the access to weapons, um, especially among people who might not have them and look for effective ways to reduce injury. And so the amount of research that was done fell by more than 90 percent between 1996 and 2000, um, research being done in this area. And so if you look at what we've done for to research um, solutions for reducing gun violence and gun injury, we're spending about or we were spending about 2% of what the problem should receive if you compare it to other causes of injury and death in the United States, especially those among children. And so this stark underfunding led to a lack of investigation about what, what effective solutions might be. And then a lack of a pipeline of researchers who were trained and interested in pursuing the, the, the problem, the public health issue. And Jennifer, I want to ask, you know, we got a comment from Tom from Manchester who says gun gun crime happens in communities, not not just criminal acts, road rage, etc. It's a national problem for all parties to get involved with it, regardless of ethnic background or gender. And you, know, you mentioned um, all the different areas of gun violence research um, in all forms and um such as you know, suicides, domestic violence to community gun violence, and also right. unintentional shootings, to, as well as police-involved shootings. Can you help us dig deeper into these areas and, and help us understand better of their sort of intersections or correlations? Sure. And, and they also intersect, I think, as Andrew pointed out, with other policy areas. So it's 
I think one thing that that's worth noting is that the types of gun violence that we tend to talk about most often, especially in the media, things like mass shootings, which are tragic and horrific and need to be addressed, actually represent just a piece of gun violence in America. Most gun violence is actually suicide. Um, it used to be about two-thirds suicides to one-third homicide. It's closer to 50-50 in the last two years. Homicides in the United States have increased tremendously. In Connecticut, it's still primarily suicide. Suicide still accounts for about 60% of gun deaths in Connecticut. But as you mentioned, um, it, it permeates many um, sectors of our life. And so community violence, as Andrew pointed out, is, is not just a product of, of guns or violence, but of an underinvestment in our communities, a lack of resources, um, a high amount of, of things to be frustrated and angry about. Um, gun suicide is a complex phenomenon, but it's related to lots of things in our community, social isolation, the fact that we're increasingly at home, along with, uh, you know, inadequate health care, especially when it comes to mental health. So I think one thing we need to think about is that gun violence really, when we say it's a public health crisis, it is a significant risk of harm to Americans in, in every sector of our life um, and something that's going to need a broader, as Andrew pointed out, approach to reducing. And with what you just said, and thank you, Tom, for that comment, and he also mentioned it's a national problem, and uh, both you and Andrew have talked about how it it impacts everyone in the community. And so I want to I want to bring this back to this idea of uh, gun violence being a public health crisis. And you mentioned funding. You know, what does the fund spend on researching and understanding gun violence compare to other areas of public health? Well, if you look at other areas of um, public health. So, for example, when we look at lung disease, cancer, heart disease, um, they receive between $6,500 and $1,700 per death, respectively. So we spend about $6,500 per death investigating ways to mitigate um, and cure lung disease. We spend about $57 per death researching gun deaths. And so, and this is not saying that we should not pursue um, solutions to lung disease or we should not pursue solutions to cancer because obviously we should. But if you look comparatively, it gives you a sense of how under investing we are in areas of gun injury and gun death. And I want to bring up, um, according to Charles Branas of the Columbia University's School of Public Health, he said, any research we would put forward would create just a waterfall of backlash. Um, does this influence how much research comes out? It might in some in some cases, and I think that could be, um, you know, specific to the policy context of a particular state, certainly doesn't seem to be the case in Connecticut here. Our state and our state university, um, specifically UConn, have invested in their researchers pursuing solutions um, for communities and, and the country as a whole when it comes to gun violence. I also have seen, I mean, if we look at the work coming out of the public health sector, 
there are a number of physicians and researchers in academic medicine who are very committed to pursuing strategies to reduce this health crisis. And so I, I think that, you know, gun violence and gun injury as, as an area can be very politicized, but it doesn't have to be. If we involve all of the impacted communities, including gun owners, if we look to evidence-based strategies rather um, and, and things that are well-grounded and documented to, to improve the outcomes we care about, injury and death, then, then I don't agree um, with that comment. Uh, Andrew, and oh, there you go. Come, go and, for it, and, ab and absolutely. And, and, you know, Jennifer, I want to I want to add to what Jennifer's comments are. You know, when we talk about, you know, research is not absent of the programs and strategies that are out there. And so they, they actually have to, obviously, you're going to research something based on what's being done or what uh, can be piloted, if you will. And we talk about some of the best practice strategies uh, that, which are some of the direct intervention programs that are out here, like hospital-linked violence intervention programs, uh, frontline engagement groups that do uh, work out here in our, in our communities. They've been around for a little while now. However, we're actually a very young industry, I like to remind folks of, is that <clears throat> the gun violence intervention programs and services that have shown promise, and not only here in the city of Hartford and across the state and the nation, we're still relatively young in terms of uh, implementing these strategies. And but oftentimes people believe that that these are well-funded strategies when in fact they're not. And so we talk about the lack of resources for um, or uh, for, for research. Clearly, there's a significant lack of resources for those who are implementing some of these programs. Pretty much you may get a year of funding or three years of funding at maximum. And then sometimes that's threatened to be stopped, depending on whether the funder has an interest in continuing the funded or the government themselves. But we have to make long term, not just short term investments in these strategies to really, really demonstrate the value of them and to be able to achieve the kind of outcomes that we are all seeking. So to give you an example, even right now in the state legislature, there's uh, many of us that are advocating that the uh, lawmakers put in a minimum of $20 million per, uh, to actually support here in the state of Connecticut, violence prevention, intervention, treatment and recovery programs. And these are strategies, again, that have been populated throughout the, uh, that, that are stood up throughout the nation and certainly here in Hartford and across the state of Connecticut, but you gotta make those investments. And so, but we really hope that people can stand behind that and support these initiatives Otherwise, um, you know, we may continue to uh, be at a place to where we find ourselves at today. The other thing is that those of us that do the stuff is here at Harvard Music here is that we we do not, on any stretch of the imagination, believe that violence prevention programs is a is the only answer. They have to be coupled with <clears throat> other policies and programs and strategies and public health strategies that um, to be effective as well. And so we really want folks to understand that that is not just one thing, it is actually a combination of things that have to take place if we're gonna prevent violence and reduce it in many of our communities. 
And Andrew, I want to build on what you just said, really. We've been talking about about gun violence on whether or not it should be treated as a public issue. So I want to ask, you know, should it be treated as a public issue? And how does that change our approach to gun violence? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, the answer is that the answer is yes, it does. But also, it's also a medical issue. It's a it's a multi prong issue. You know, we 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 talk about public health. You know, seatbelts. We clearly know that uh, that which was a public health issue when it came down to auto accidents and folks were dying by the thousands uh, decades ago. And when we put in place that, that particular strategy, we begin to see a significant reduction in um, in, in auto deaths as a result of seatbelts. And then we talk about tobacco cessation programs and. Um, a variety of different strategies, public health, I mean, uh, media strategies to raise awareness of these issues and then how folks can really uh, rally around putting in uh, strategies to address it. But again, yes, from a public health standpoint, we can use some of the public health strategies that have been known to reduce, uh, the, to, to, to help with other issues. But still, we need to make sure that it's multi-pronged um, as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Andrew. And and I think um, automobile accidents is a great example. There's a few examples um, a, that public health has. I mean, there's there's more than a few, but automobiles. And I'll give you one of where public the public health approach really has saved a number of lives. And um, and I don't know that everybody we talk about public health, but really understands what we mean by that. So, you know, Andrew mentioned automobiles, which used to be the number one cause of injury and death in children, those Americans under 19. It's now second to gun violence. And, you know, in 1967, so if we go back, way back, there were about 50,000 deaths, over 50,000 deaths from car crashes. In 2017, that number had dropped down to about 38,000. And in 2021, that had dropped down to 31,000. Meanwhile, our population has expanded tremendously, as have the number of drivers per household, right? And the number of cars we have. And so even as cars were becoming more prevalent, injury and death rates related to cars went down. And that's like, you know, thanks to public health researchers and, and partnerships with the automobile industries, seatbelts, collapsible steering wheels, changes in the material that windshields were are made of, right? Different kinds of glass. Those have all made cars safer. Public health researchers didn't advocate to take guns off the road or cars off the road, excuse me, just like the solution to gun violence isn't removing everybody's gun. That's not practical. It's not reasonable. It's not going to happen here in Connecticut. And I think that we politicize the public health approach sometimes um, to gun violence or the response to that is politicized when that's not the approach. We also saw a public health approach make tremendous strides with the AIDS epidemic. And again, mm -hmm. not, not going forth with a response of abstinence, but with safer sex, with medications to treat um, the virus. And so I think the public health approach is not about, it's about managing the risk and finding what the safer 
safest practices are to live with that risk. And I do want to ask, you know, because both of you had mentioned cars, and I'm wondering, could the healthcare and the firearm industry work together the way the automobile and healthcare industry does? And Jennifer, want to start? We can end with Andrew. Sure. Um, They could. I think that there are there is technology that could make guns safer. Um, triggers that can't be fired by small hands, biometric technology that would prevent someone other than an owner from using a weapon. There's biometrics technology that can keep a gun secured in a safe and only allow those who are supposed to have access to have access. So I think there are ways that the, the gun industry and researchers or policymakers could work together to make weapons safer, um, make it harder for them to get into the wrong hands, um, especially small hands. Andrew, what are your thoughts? Could the healthcare and firearm industry work together the way the automobile and healthcare industry work together? Well, well certainly they can. Um, and again, what we, we, we that do this work wouldn't limit it to, again, just the, the, the class of um, hospitals and uh, or, or healthcare and, um, and, and, and gun makers, but certainly with practitioners that are actually out there implementing some of these strategies and policymakers that are also monitoring these efforts to see how they themselves can also continue to put in place policies that um, doesn't limit our ability to be able to create the best solutions um, that are that could be out there. You've been listening to Andrew Woods. He's the CEO for Hartford's Communities That Care, as well as Dr. Jennifer Deneen. She's the Associate Director of the Arms Center for Gun Injury Prevention at UConn. They'll both be staying with us to continue the conversation about seeing gun violence as a public health issue. You can also join the conversation. Give us a call at 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking about how to change the way we view gun violence as a public health issue. And back with us to talk about what they take into consideration are Andrew Woods. He's the CEO of Hartford Communities That Care and Dr. Jennifer Deneen, who is the Associate Director of the Arms Center for Gun Injury Prevention at UConn. And so, Jennifer, we've been talking so much about gun violence as a public health issue. I also want to ask, are we increasingly becoming a culture that's starting to accept these mass shootings as a part of our everyday? That's a that's a tough question, Catherine. Accept is a hard word. I would definitely agree that they are becoming 
more commonplace. Um, they we seem to, as a, a collective community, move past each one. We almost can't keep up with each one. So I'm not sure we're really accepting them. Um, some states are doing more um, to try to prevent them. Although I think all states would argue that that they're not accepting them. I, I think states have different approaches to what they think makes their community safer. Um, but we're certainly learning to live with them, which which is uh, not quite acceptance, but it, it it's also uh, a kind of a, a scary place to be. And Andrew, yeah. oh, go for it. C- certainly, and, and I tell you, and from a when, from an urban gun violence standpoint, um, you know, we've se- somewhat separated in one respect from from mass shootings, if you will, is that, you know, we do struggle uh, with the notion that folks are accepting this. Um, and then we get, we somewhat get repulsed by the fact that people are, we, we throw the word out there, desensitized. When in fact, I like to remind people that really when you think about it, folks have decided, it's basically a coping mechanism to decide to somewhat turn off this this button, if you will, that keeps popping up. And so if folks are chronically exposed to violent crime and it continues to re-traumatize them, then people automatically develop coping mechanisms that may appear to be that they're desensitized or they're numb to it. They may be numb to it. They may be desensitized to it. But let's put that in context, is that you cannot continue on a daily basis, be exposed or chronically exposed to traumatic circumstances and not develop coping mechanisms to defend yourself psychologically, emotionally, et cetera. And that's really what we see. That's what we see in young people who appear to be desensitized. No, they have simply developed coping strategies to make sure that they can somehow manage to get through their day. And so I really want to make sure that at least I put that out there because there's just so many the misperceptions about how people are living and dealing with and, uh, these challenges that they encounter that they encounter on a daily basis. And so- yeah, Andrew, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that, you know, the the seemingly the randomness of mass shootings are, are terrifying for people. And I think that that is a strategy to continue to survive and be productive in our communities. Um, And I would argue that we actually talk about mass shootings and we hear more more push about the need to do something after a mass shooting than we do about the other types of gun violence that are happening more frequently and more prevalently in our communities, right? I don't know that we're um, willing to live with suicide, the the suicide rates and the the effectiveness of guns, um, the lethality of guns and the role that plays in, in suicide rates. But we certainly don't have the same response to that on a daily basis or the homicides happening in our community or family violence, right? There's so many places where we live with gun violence, but we talk a lot about being willing to live with mass shootings. And I think that's something we need to to yeah. think about. And I, I do want to jump in real quick because we only have about two minutes left. But I want to ask Andrew, uh, you have an event coming up related to what we're talking about today, actually. Can you talk about um, on this upcoming Saturday, the fifth annual Youth Summit and how important is it to get young voices involved with these advocacy efforts as well as in education? 
Yes, for the past past 25 years since we've been around, our organization actually started as an, a leadership academy where we train young people and we work with young people to identify the issues, come up with practical solutions, and they themselves uh, put on these forums and these uh, 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 conferences to where they're peer-led, peer-educator conferences, to where they discuss the issues. And then they invite adults to hear how they perceive and how they uh, would like to be, how they perceive the solutions or what they perceive the issues to be and the solutions to some of those challenges. And so that's what's gonna take place here at 2550 Main Street is our uh, seventh, our fifth annual Raising Youth Voices Conference to where young people uh, from across the city and across the region will come together and talk about these issues. And again, some of their solutions to some of the challenges that they're faced with. In about 30 seconds, can you talk about how important it is to get the young voices involved with this, as well as um, having them being involved in education? A- absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, you, you know, young people, they're just they're smart, they're creative, they're engaging. Uh, all they're looking for is opportunities for uh, what, validation, uh, opportunities for pro-social involvement, opportunities. I mean, they want to be guided, they want to be supported, and they want safety. And so when you offer up those opportunities for young people to really display and to present who they are authentically, then then that's where you begin to see young people thrive, regardless of what the community is. And, and they become very, very successful as a result of that. And that's where we as adults need to continue to be mindful that we provide those opportunities for pro-social involvement, we validate and we support these young people at the end of the day, what, what we will get is uh, young people who um, are in a better place. And that's why, for me and for us, that's why it's important that we, and whether it's here or within our education system, provide those opportunities. You've been listening to Andrew Woods. He's a CEO of Hartford Communities That Care and Dr. Jennifer Deneen, who is the Associate Director of the Arm Center for Gun Injury Prevention at UConn. I want to thank both of you so much for your time um, and joining us today. Thanks for having mm. me, Catherine. And thank you, Catherine. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Dylan Reyes. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.